Welcome to the Convivium COVID-19 Podcasts. Visit us at www.convivium-brecken.com. Series 1. Paradoxes in an Ancient Landscape. What a Welsh Mountain Taught Me About God and the World. By Mark Clavier. Episode 12. The Eucharist. And so I bade farewell to Cader Idris. As of today, I've only been back once, a brief visit when heavy rain and an impenetrable fog convinced my wife and me to venture no further than the car park. What surprises me most isn't that I've not climbed up the, to the craggy Penagadire in over four years. Wales has plenty of mountains and countryside to explore elsewhere but that Kader Idris continues to occupy my thoughts and imagination to this day. Since that overnight trip, I've been up many more mountains, a number of which are far more impressive in size and sublimity. Kader Idris hardly compares to, say, the coals of the Tour de Mont Blanc or the otherworldly peaks in Iceland where glacial heights loom over lunar landscapes. And yet Kader Idris has occupied a place in my mind like no other place. Perhaps it was some premonition of this impact that made me particularly reflective as I drove back to Cardiff in South Wales. As I pulled onto the main road and left the Decini Valley behind me, it wasn't the contrast between my ordinary life and the wonder of Kader Idris that preoccupied me. I was listening to a program on the car radio about technology, the razzle-dazzle of some new game or show that everyone was raving about. Some wag compared it to seeing Star Wars for the first time and judged for the viewers that it was unlike anything they will have experienced in their real lives. I thought of the U2 song better than the real thing and suddenly had a kind of epiphany that has since completely changed how I think. Of wonders. When I stood admiring my 360-degree panorama atop Kader Idris, what dominated my view could be summed up by the old terrestrial elements earth, water, air, fire. The igneous rocks that had caught my attention during my ascent comprised 90 to 95 percent of the earth's crust. The peaty turf still seems exotic to me, but effectively it's grass, which we can see almost everywhere. The rest was primarily liquid water, vapor, air, and the sun. I could go on, but you get the picture. Natural wonders always consist of the most ordinary, most commonplace of materials, only arranged and displayed in ways that catch our attention and amaze us. The ordinariness of natural wonders teaches us at least two lessons. The first should now be a familiar theme. Natural wonders exist harmoniously with the rest of creation. My admiration of a sunset or round mossy stones alongside a babbling brook costs the planet nothing. Natural marvels are nothing other than ordinary things that strike us in particular ways. There was nothing objectively different within my mountaintop view from any other place. Nothing was alien to the landscape. The sea had simply filled the gap left by Ireland and Britain sliding apart. The river flowed from a spring somewhere up in the mountains. The rock and earth were formed by typical geological forces. 
and the vegetation had sprouted, as it always does, from rich, fertile soil. What was different was the natural arrangement of air, water, earth, and fire in a way that clothed everything with beauty. My vantage point from over 3,000 feet allowed me to see that arrangement as a whole, like stepping back to appreciate the entirety of a painting or an architectural masterpiece. Nothing had been imposed or rearranged with the intention of gaining my attention, but the dimension of beauty enabled me to see the wonder of the ordinary, form imbued even dull rock and earth with majesty. The second lesson takes us back to G.K. Chesterton's idea that we're too old to marvel in everyday things. Our world is filled with wonders that we're too bored to notice. We often don't appreciate things that would dazzle people who never came across them before. We need something spectacular to jolt us out of our malaise. Otherwise, we take familiar marvels for granted. I'm reminded of this whenever I return from trekking. How wonderful a comfortable bed, a home-cooked meal, and a toilet become when you've gone without them. Few people have articulated our typical failure to appreciate the commonplace better than the 17th century poet Thomas Traherne. The dual themes of his centuries of meditations are the astonishing wonder to be found in ordinary things and how delighting in those things is the secret to living a rich life. He captures these ideas in a phrase he repeats like a litany. You never enjoy the world aright till. For example, you never enjoy the world aright till the sea itself floweth in your veins, till you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars, and perceive yourself to be the sole heir of the whole world, and more than so because men are in it who are every one, sole heirs as well as you, till you can sing and rejoice and delight in God, as misers do in gold and kings and scepters, you never enjoy the world. Throughout his meditations, Traherne tries to push us to recognize that there really is no ordinary, that all of creation can be a source of wonder if we would only stop to appreciate it. To paraphrase Augustine, miracles only seem extraordinary to those who forget that existence itself is miraculous. And so at last we come to our final paradox. Atop Kader Idris, I could see nothing that wasn't commonplace. Sky, sun, earth, rock, water, air, grass. There wasn't a single object in my view that I wouldn't find in my own backyard. And yet how wonderful it all was. In the ordinariness of this world, I encountered God's glory. In the wonder of that glory, I could see only what's available anywhere. The wonderful and the ordinary, together, inseparable, and utterly overwhelming my defenses. My view was a topographical parable about the Incarnation. In Jesus, the wonderful and the ordinary are united in a way that overcomes our defenses. The incomprehensible majesty of God and the utter ordinariness of man come together in Christ. But what I also learned as I reflected on the commonplace wonder of Kadir Idris is how ordinary the Incarnation really is. 
Perhaps the babe of Bethlehem only seems extraordinary to us, too blinded by sin, to recognize that God never stands far from his creation, and that creation has always yearned to embrace her creator. Perhaps the fall did not so much estrange the world from God as us from both God and the community of creation. At the start of Book 5 of his Confessions, Augustine reflected on how, during his dissolute youth, he was blind to God even though God was everywhere around him. Even as he searched for God, God was actually near to him, closer, as he notes later, than even he was to himself. He concludes, Where was I when I was seeking for you? You were there before me, but I had departed from myself. I could not even find myself, much less you. Augustine perceived what we so often fail to see. Not only that we have absented ourselves from the God who is all around and in us, but that by so doing we also became lost to ourselves. The Incarnation declares, as in our marriage services, that those whom God has joined together let no one separate. God and his creation are never apart. It's only us fallen human beings in our pride and self-centeredness who have come to believe otherwise. The dark truth of modernity is that once we lose sight of God, we lose sight also of creation and of ourselves. We become lost souls in a darkening world, no longer hallowed by the presence of God. Our desperate search for wonders and pleasurable escapes from the ordinary are more like addicts turning their place inside out to find drugs than a search for something divine. In our bid to create wonderful lives on our own terms, we've lost touch with our creator and are swiftly destroying his creation. The incarnation demonstrated, however, that despite our perceived isolation, the wonder of God is commonplace and that all that is ordinary is taken up in the majesty of God. This isn't to say that God becoming man wasn't unique, but that it wasn't a violation, an invasion, a rupture in the divine order of creation. The incarnation was, you might say, creation's summation, calling us, like prodigal children, back into the fold. But if I may press a little further, I think the relationship between the wonderful and the commonplace is fundamentally Eucharistic. In the ordinary substance of bread and wine, we encounter and receive the wonder of Christ's presence. In the ordinary practice of people gathering for a meal, we find the world's Savior in our midst. What's more common than grapes, water, and wheat? What food more commonplace than bread? What place more ordinary? than a table set for a meal. And yet in that place, and in these items, the faithful discover their wonderful Savior and are united with God. If we accept that we have become estranged from both God and his creation, then we can also see how fitting it is that we're united with God through ordinary elements. If God had come dressed only in his majesty, then we'd be forgiven for embracing wonders with no thought for the everyday. In essence, he would be confirming the human compulsion to grasp power and glory. 
Conversely, if the bread and wine were only barren signs of Christ, nothing more than mementos of his body and blood, then we could continue to consider wonders in the commonplace, heaven and earth, as distant regions from each other. But the Eucharistic sacrament declares to us that what God has joined together can never be separated, that in Christ even ordinary people are welcome to be transformed into extraordinary creatures. In his beautiful little book, For the Life of the World, the Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmermann writes, In this world Christ is crucified, his body broken, and his blood shed. And we must go out of this world, we must ascend to heaven in Christ in order to become partakers of the world to come. But this is not an other world, different from the one God has created and given to us. It is our same world, already perfected in Christ, but not yet in us. It is our same world, redeemed and restored, in which Christ fills all things with himself. And since God has created the world as food for us and has given us food as a means of communion with him, of life in him, the new food of the new life which we receive from God in his kingdom is Christ himself. He is our bread, because from the very beginning all our hunger was a hunger for him, and all our bread but a symbol of him, a symbol that had to become a reality. My mountaintop experience on Kadar Idris demonstrated the truth of this. The wonder I witnessed there wasn't an escape from the ordinary, but a movement deeper into it. Likewise, the Incarnation reveals that our salvation doesn't involve a flight from this world, but an ascent to God through the world he created, redeemed, and transformed. So, too, the Eucharist invites us to the marriage feast of the Lamb by perceiving the wonder of Christ's presence in ordinary food. As George Herbert reminds us in his poem, Love Three, love bids us welcome. We have only to sit and eat. This has been a production of Convivium an initiative of Brecon Cathedral to encourage people to live well with God, creation, their local heritage, and each other. For more information about Convivium, visit us at www.convivium-brecon.com.